If you lit, what's up? This is Mrs. Ford. It is 8.17 on Tuesday, April 14th. I 100% didn't know the date until just now. Um, I hope you guys are doing well. I just recently watched the Elmo special with my kids. And then I watched college, the college championship on Jeopardy. And I really think you guys need to be watching Jeopardy this week. You would get so many of the questions right. And it just feels good to use my brain. I hope you want to use your brain, but I don't know if you do. <laughs> okay. Um, today on the show, uh, or tonight I should say, on the pod I want to talk about chapter 8. So if you haven't read through chapter 8, or I don't know like when you find it helpful to listen to these podcasts if you're about to read it or whatever. But anyway... I'm going to discuss chapter eight. So if you didn't, if you haven't read up through, like if you haven't read through seven, I would say stop and go read or get caught up. And then also listen to the podcast about chapter seven, because there's really a crucial plot moment in chapter seven, which I'm about to say. And if you don't know it, I'm going to spoil something. So here I go. Last chance. Okay. At the, at the end of chapter seven, Okonkwo kills Akeme Funa. And we all know, you know, that was all last episode. So now in chapter eight, we open with the grief of Okonkwo. And I want you guys to notice that Okonkwo is not as two-dimensional as we think he is. He has all sorts of feelings. He just chooses not to express them because, as we've talked about, the thing that motivates Okonkwo and everything is being perceived as a man. That's what he thinks is like the definition of success. So he's devastated by what by the death of Akemi Funa, I'm not sure he's regretful. That is not made entirely clear, but he is devastated by the loss. And we know this because he can't eat, he can't sleep. Um, just, you know, the opening sentence says, Akemi, or sorry, Okako did not taste any food for two days after the death of Akemi Funa. He drank palm wine from morning until night, and his eyes were red and fierce like the eyes of a rat when it was caught by the tail and dashed against the floor. So he doesn't, he has these, sorry, this is a Sesame Street term. He has these really big feelings. That's the Sesame Street term, but he doesn't know what to do with them. Um, no one's ever, you know, it's just not a part of his culture for, you know, it's just not anything he would ever know or be taught. And it doesn't, I'm not trying to make him like a victim or anything. I'm just saying, I'm explaining that he does feel things. He just chooses not to express those emotions. Um, Okay, then, okay, on to a different topic. This is super subtle, but twice, one on page 67 and then one on page 68, he talks about his daughter, who's now 10 years old. And remember, her name is Azinma. And twice in this chapter, he says that Azinma, quote, should have been a boy. And um, I, I don't know, like, to what degree Chinua Achebe is talking about gender identification, but definitely he's discussing this issue of gender identity within the clan. So Azinma has these, quote, boy-like, because I don't think they're boy-like at all, um, but they are for this clan. She has these boy-like qualities, and, like, Okonkwo can't understand it, right? He's not – he doesn't understand that a person is many things. He just thinks boys are should have this quality of characteristics and girls have this quality of characteristics, he loves her. He adores her. He just thinks that she should have been born a boy. Um, and Azima is a is a major character for us. But I just want you. I just want to touch on that theme of gender. 
Okay. After he grieves Akemefuna, he goes to this um, friend. He, he has a really good friend named Obiarika. And I don't know if that's how you say it, but I'm doing my best. And this is um, on the top of page 69. And so he goes to Obiarika's house. And this is like a guy who is in the clan. And I think he's a little bit, I suspect, based on the ages of his children, maybe it is actually explicitly stated Obiarika is a little older than Okonkwo, but he really sees Obiarika as a man of wisdom. He trusts him. He thinks he's a real man. Um, and they talk about some issues in the clan. All of this is also in the context of the fact that Obiarika's daughter, uh, they are preparing a marriage for her. And we'll get to that in a moment. But first, they have this conversation that's really interesting where... Obiarika says, you know, you should not, I don't, he, he says, here's the quote, I cannot understand why you refused, oh no, sorry, Okonkwo says to Obiarika, I cannot understand why you refused to come with us to kill that boy, he asked Obiarika. Now remember, we talked about this last time, part of, a, part of what is going on in this clan is this devout following or this devout belief in the oracle, but not everybody is that extreme. So for Obiarika, he heard what the Oracle said and he chose not to participate. Um, you're going to learn a little bit more about Obiarika, but he is a character who questions the Oracle. And there's a lot of people who question the Oracle and sometimes they come together and make a change and other times they don't. Um, but the existence of this belief system doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in that community believes everything 120%. Obi, you know, it's, it's, it's just like any other religion, which is kind of why this book is so important, where if you were to walk into a church or a temple or a mosque, perhaps depending on where you were, of course, you would have some people who have pretty extreme views. And then you would have some people who have um, some not so extreme views. And for, Okonkwo, he has these, I shouldn't have used the word extreme. That's not really what I meant. I just meant to say like, he follows the rules of the religion, period. End of story. And Obiarika is really a guy who questions things. Um, he doesn't follow the rules of the religion in some, in certain contexts. Like he kind of has this conscious that overrides some things. So he, he kind of, he just says, um, he says, because I didn't want to, Obiarika replied, I had something better to do. And then Okonkwo says, you sound as if you question the authority and the decision of the oracle who said he should die. And then Obiarika says, I do not. Why should I? But the oracle did not ask me to carry out its decision. So he, you know, kind of evades the question a little bit, but I want you guys to keep an eye on Obiarika. He becomes a really important character and in the sense that he's like Okonkwo in that he's a man of the clan. He's highly respected. He has many wives. He has many children. He does all these things a certain Igbo way, but he's so different from Okonkwo in the sense that they really believe certain things. Okay. The next thing that happens in the book is that we learn that Obiarika is preparing a wedding. He, his daughter is being married and 
one, you know, I told you guys, I think at the very beginning that this whole, this whole first part of the book, we really have to learn all the customs and traditions of the Igbo people. And in this chapter specifically, we're not going to learn about the wedding. We're going to learn about the bride price. So on pages 72, 73, um, toward the end of the chapter, we have this whole negotiation of the bride price. And the one thing that you want to understand about the bride price is that it's the opposite of a dowry. So a dowry is like, oh, if you're going to marry our daughter, we're going to give you all this stuff. And in this situation, it's, it's reversed where in order to marry the daughter, the husband's, the potential husband's family has to ante up, right? They have to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to negotiate. Like we're going to give you a certain amount for this daughter. And though you may see the practice as archaic, and I can understand that the characters in the book really see this practice as valuing the woman. And I'm going to read a couple excerpts to talk about that. Okay. A couple things before I get there though, there's so many little hidden gems of the details of this clan that I want to highlight. So the first thing is, is that they talk about tapping trees. Okay. So they're, they're getting wine out of trees and you need a good tree tapper to do it. And the, when the potential husband's family comes to see Obiarika, they bring wine and the potential son-in-law, um, so, yeah, the Obiarika's potential son-in-law talk, talks about how he's a good tapper. So and there's this great quote where it says, as the men drank, they talked about everything except for the thing for which they had gathered. It was only after the pot had been emptied that the suitor's father cleared his voice and announced the object of their visit. So, you know, I'm going to be drawing a lot of similarities between this culture and our culture, and it doesn't work in all contexts, but I do want you guys to notice this idea of when these people come together, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to drink together and they're going to talk, not talk business, but first they're just going to have talk and conversation. Um, if you read a million years ago is what it seems like to me, but if you, over the summer, if you read the book, how to read literature, like a professor, Thomas C. Foster talks about how communion, meaning the sharing of the sharing of drinks or food is really important. It's a sacred act. <coughs> And I think the chapter is called nice to eat with you acts of communion. This is obviously also true in real life. When we have people to our homes, when we go to parties, um, when you're an adult, okay, don't get carried away here, people. But if you've ever been to a, a get together with your parents, your parents will often say like, oh, what are we bringing? Right? Like the, it's like, you know, my mom, me, whomever is the head of the household is always like, what, what are we bringing? We can't go in empty handed. This is like a really big deal because it's a sign of courtesy. Um, so maybe they bring a bottle of wine, maybe they bring mashed potatoes, but they always bring something to share as the guest. You want to bring something to share. And so these men who are meeting over the bride price, they do a similar thing. They, they, the, the visiting family brings this palm wine and they all drink it together and they sit around and talk for a while and then they get down to business, which is the bride price. The, there's this other great scene where the, the, uh, the young woman comes in and, uh, okay, I'm going to say this word wrong, but you just, you just have to bear with me. Okay, wait, hold on. I'm going to start on the mid 74. 
As he was speaking, the boy returned, followed by Akweku, his half-sister, carrying a wooden dish with three cola nuts and alligator pepper. She gave the dish to her father's eldest brother and then shook his hands very shyly with her suitor and his relatives. She was about 16, just ripe for marriage. There's something about that language that I don't like, right? But obviously... Achebe is trying to communicate to us that this is the age at which a woman would get married in this culture. Her suitor and his relatives surveyed her young body with expert eyes as if to assure themselves that she was beautiful and ripe. Again, that word really annoys me, but um, we're trying to understand the culture. Okay. Then it says she wore a coiffure and I don't, I don't know if I'm saying that right, which was done up into a crest in the middle of her head. I think this is a, like a high bun. Cam wood was rubbed lightly into her skin and all over her whole body were black patterns drawn with uli. That's really cool. I want to know what that looks like. It's like her skin is decorated. She wore a black necklace, which hung down in three coils just above her, her full succulent breasts. Remember, nobody's got a shirt on. Keep that in mind. Very normal for them. On her arms were red and yellow bangles and on her waist were four or five rows of jigida or waist beads. Okay, the waist beads. This is what I want to talk about. So it's really hard. We don't get a lot of images of these people um, in terms of like what they're what they have on their bodies. But she, you know, this is a big deal for her. Her suitor's family is visiting, so her hair is done, and then she has um, patterns drawn on her skin, and then she's in the necklace, and she has these waist beads on. And then it says, when she had shaken hands, or rather held out her hand to be shaken, she returned to her mother's hut to help with the cooking. Remove your jigata first, her mother warned as she moved near the fireplace to bring the pestle resting against the wall. Every day I tell you that jigata and fire are not friends, but you will never hear. You grew your ears for decoration, not hearing. One of these days your jigata will catch fire on your waist, and then you will know. So we have this really, you know, sort of typical teenage mom moment where the mom is saying, you know, you have to be careful. And um, she's acknowledging the daughter never listens. Okay, so then it says, Aquaco moved to the other end of the hut and began to remove the waist beads. It had to be done slowly and carefully, taking each string separately, else it would break, and the thousand tiny rings would have to be strung together. She rubbed each string downward with her palms until it passed the, the buttocks and slipped down to the floor around her feet. You know what? I might Google this, actually. I want to see what this looks like. Anyway, so this is the Jigida, and it's these decorative waist beads, and I just think they sound beautiful. There's a thousand beads on this thing. Hold on. Let me see if there's a picture of someone wearing it. Um, Kind of. I don't know. I guess, yeah, but um, maybe not in the same way that she is. It sounds like she's got quite a few around her waist. Okay. So just these little images that we get. So then the men go on to decide the bride price. And um, I want to talk about specifically, you know, they agree on a price. And then at the end of this conversation, they have this really interesting talk about what other, what other groups do. Or I should say what other clans do. And what they're really talking about is like how the traditions and the customs of other villages and how they're all really different. Amofia does one thing and um, Abame does another thing. And everyone in Amofia really feels like their way is the best way. And you can imagine that everyone in the other village feels like their way is the best way. 
And at the end of this chapter, they have this conversation where they're sort of comparing all sorts of things. Okay. So this is on the bottom of page 74. It says, as the men drank in the palm and as the men ate and drank palm wine, they talked about customs of their neighbors. It was only this morning, said Obirika, that Okonkwo and I were talking about Abame and Aninta, where titled men climb trees and pound fufu for their wives. Oh, they think this is hilarious, like, right? That anyone would pound yam for the wife. All their customs are upside down. They do not decide bride price as we do with sticks. They haggle and bargain as if they were buying a goat or a cow in the market. So as much as we, the reader, may see this negotiation as feels like you're buying a, an animal, they don't. They really see it as upholding the value of the woman. That is very bad, said Obirika's eldest brother. But what is good in one place is bad at another place. In a month so, they do not bargain at all, not even with broomsticks. The suitor just goes on bringing bags of cowries until his in-laws tell him to stop. It is a bad custom because it always leads to a quarrel. Um, the world is large, said Okonkwo. I have even seen, or I have even heard that in some tribes, a man's children belong to his wife and her family. And of course, Okonkwo thinks it's hilarious. At the end of this, they say, it is like the story of the white men who they say are white like pieces of chalk, said Obirika. He held up a piece of chalk, which every man kept in his obi, and with which his guests drew lines on the floor before they ate kola nuts. And these white men, they say, have no toes. Have you ever seen them? Asked Maki. Have you? Asked Obirika. One of them passes here frequently, said Maki. His name is Amadi. Those who knew Amadi laughed. He was a leper, and the polite name for leprosy was the white skin. Okay, so I just want to point something out here of what he's trying to, of what Achebe is trying to emphasize, is that in, in this time period, late 1800s, these clans, they have never seen interference from, from the Europeans. So they, they, you know, talk about white people with no toes. Like they, they have never seen these people up close before. And when they do reference a white person, it's not a Caucasian European. It's someone who is African with different looking skin because of a condition they have. So they don't know anything about these people. They've never interacted with them before. I don't know. I mean, I, for me, what's interesting about that is you have to imagine just with the movement of humans, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, we have a lot of naval exploration. People are moving about the globe in a way that they had never really done before. And as a result of that, cultural collision is inevitable. Oh my gosh. Was there anything that could have been done, right? Was there anything that could have been done to maintain some of these cultures that crashed into each other. On my other podcast that I record, I talk to teachers at BHS about their favorite books. And I just recently, sorry, my phone's singing. <clears throat> I just recently interviewed Mrs. Smith and she talked about how her, her favorite book was guns, germs, and steel. And it was all about the European exploration of the Americas and how we the Europeans killed 85% of the native American population, either through guns, germs, or steel, but a lot of it was germs. And what is so, I mean, obviously with the exploration of the Americas, history took a strong term turn and, and the native American population was nearly wiped out. And if it wasn't wiped out, it was changed forever. I just wonder 
when we collide with another culture, when humans have collided with each other, is there any other way to do it besides one person takes over and the other group of people get annihilated? And I just think if there's no other way to do it, that's a really sad state of affairs for our species. I I don't know what interview this was with. I don't know if it was a Cheve, but someone said, how should it have gone? And what, wait, who said this? I got to find this before I quote this. Cause I think it was about another global conflict. And, and basically the person being interviewed said the collision is inevitable, right? One group of people running into another group of people that look nothing alike and have nothing in common is just going to happen at some point or another. And then there's a fallout from that. I think what this book does that no other book really does is that it starts with the Evo people so that when the cultures do collide and things do fall apart, you as the reader understand what is lost, right? So when, we, when we've studied uh, the Congo in the past, when we've studied King Leopold in the past, you know, we talk a lot about King Leopold in Belgium and you know, all these greedy Europeans. But what we don't talk about is what was lost. You know, we know it was a genocide, 10 million people. We get the photographs of the arms. But like what cultures were lost? What cultural practices were lost? What languages were lost? Um, what were these people going through absent of King Leopold arriving? All sorts of things that make history more complicated. But also if we explore the complexities, we have a better understanding of of what the true, of like where the conflicts were and then how the conflicts, I don't want to say could have been resolved. It's a little too optimistic, but the keys to it, right? What you're going to find, I don't want to give too much away, is that there's really no effort to understand the other side from either, from either side, right? From the Europe, from the Christians or the Igbo. And then if we look forward in history, that's always the problem is that when somebody arrives, there's not enough effort to understand the people who are already there. Okay. I'm going to stop talking. That was chapter eight. Um, we are going to come back. We're actually going to go to Obiarika's daughter's wedding, but we learned a lot about more traditions and customs. We learned a lot about more. We learned a lot more about our character Okonkwo and the people that are sort of in his wor world. Obiarika, Azinma, those are both major players. Okay. So tomorrow I'm going to be on the pod. I'm going to read a poem. And I'm going to talk a lot about the AP practice that I want people to do. If you're not taking the AP test, I don't, you don't need to do any of the AP practice. Excuse me. Just so you guys know, this week I'm only assigning chapters 7, 8, and 9. I would like everyone to make their best effort to get caught up. If you have not read any of this book, I am on page 77. And by the end of the week, we're going to be on page... 88. If you're just picking up the book for the first time and you have nothing going on all week, I really believe that you could read 88 pages in seven days. Um, you may have things going on that I don't know about and I can understand that. Next week, however, we're going to do a reading and an assignment Monday, Tuesday, a reading and an assignment Wednesday, Thursday. So keep that in mind. This is the week to get caught up. All right. All right, I'll be back on tomorrow night with a podcast, and I'm going to talk a lot about the AP Lit Test tomorrow for those of you taking it. I hope you guys have a great night.